So, Jonathan, you founded SponsorCraft. In a, like, Twitter-style status update, i.e. super concise, what is SponsorCraft? SponsorCraft is Kickstarter for the education sector. Amazing. How on earth did you get into setting up something like that? So, I, uh, in 2008, whilst I was still at university, I, uh, I was heavily involved in student funding. I was, I was raising money for two or three different societies at, at once and realised quite how painful and inefficient the process was. Every different pitch was effectively bespoke and unique and every time you went to pitch to a company, and we pitched to Shell a few times, um, you had to read everything and it just seemed broken. And also, I mean, even in Cambridge, which is a really well-funded university, only about 20% of funding demands for student projects ever actually got met, which is kind of ridiculous when you think of the, the strength of the alumni group out there, the strength of the amount of money that was going into the sector. So um, we started toying with the idea of creating a website, making it easier for students to raise money, but we hadn't really made that connection between how you engage alumni and, and the students at the time. This was back in 2008, and in 2008 crowdfunding didn't exist, Kickstarter didn't exist. And it's only in the last sort of three or four years this has really exploded in the US. Kickstarter's a, a crowdfunding platform for creative projects. Um, and they now do about $200 million a year in deal flow to help fund people to build products, to make films, uh, to run events, and, and do lots of kind of big, large-scale projects. But even even basically from, from the amateur side. So it's not professional developers for the most part. It's amateurs making their dream, dream come true. And we basically looked at this and just thought... What's the ideal sector for crowdfunding? I mean, really, we have passionate, motivated, dedicated students with time on their hands to do, to do cool projects, a lack of funding, and an enormous donation ethic that already exists from the alumni. So we have alumni groups um, around the world already give over $25 billion a year in philanthropic funding to universities. So we just thought, look, this, this market's there. Uh, we have to build the platform. Uh, you know, it's a gamble. We've no idea whether it will actually work, but, but let's give it a shot. There's demand on both sides. There's two and a half billion students in the world. There's $25 billion being given to their institutions. And let's try and get in on this, and let's try and double it, to be honest. You're like matchmakers of dreams. Exactly, a dating agency. <laughs> so if you had to pinpoint, like, the three main sort of moments that have defined where you are now as a business, mm. what do you think those have been? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so I think perhaps the first thing was we, we assumed that the, the website development, I think, was going to be an awful lot less work than it was. And that's actually, it was a bit of a surprise for me because I'm a technologist anyway. So I did computer science at, at, at university and, and I thought, you know, well, this will take a month or two to build. It took six months to build. And Was that because of specific challenges you hadn't seen or just things take longer than you think they do? To be honest, I think, I think entrepreneurs are sort of naturally confident and optimistic and, and believe that they can do things faster than anybody else. Um, I mean, it, it, to some degree, it, it, it's arrogance, but to some it's just confidence and over-optimism. I mean, we, we had a quote or two when we started. We thought about outsourcing it, and the quotes came back at, you know, £45,000 to build the website, and we just thought, now nah, we can do it in two months. Now, actually, had we outsourced it at that point in time, it probably would have ended up costing us less. But the decision we made to do it in-house and do it ourselves, in the, in the end, has been hugely beneficial for because we managed to keep the, the technology uh, something that we understood and that we could then develop and build and, and improve on. So I think perhaps the first key moment was 
having spent six months developing it, we then had to wait another two or three weeks to get approved by PayPal. All of our uh, transaction processing is done through PayPal. And we were actually at a party celebrating our site launch, which had been planned, assuming we'd have loads of time. And PayPal hadn't approved it by that point, so we were at the launch. And I had the email through at nine o'clock at night on a, on a Friday night in our party from PayPal, you know, to say your, your application's been approved. So that, that is was, uh, awesome. That was a cool moment. You so. couldn't you couldn't write that if you tried, really. It's like no, it was well, a, hang on in there, well, hang on in there. Yeah, movie script, movie script. <laughs> so that's that. Those are sort of two. Are there any more? Is that the kind of main? So I, I think the other thing was the realization when we. When we went and pitched to development offices at universities. So before the site was even launched, we'd started our marketing and we'd said, you know, the real holy grail here is to get the universities to push out this stuff themselves, to, to market the product to their alumni and, and sell the student projects and help basically help us build that network of, of donors. Um, that just doesn't work. I mean, you don't walk into a university and tell them to change, change the system they've been using for 100 years. So that was a really interesting learning experience. And what we had to do is just go right back to the drawing board on our marketing strategy and, and think about how we could actually leverage trust at each stage. So, uh, so, you know, we actually spent two or three weeks developing a new plan, which was get the students on board. Once you've got the students on board, go to the student union and say, your students are using this, would you like to partner with us? And then once you've got the student union and the students on board, go to the university and say, look, your students are using it, your student union's partnered with us, let's put your brand on this as well, because you're missing out at the moment. You know, the alumni are seeing you know, 50 projects from your university at the moment, but the one thing that's missing is your logo. Do, do you not want to help your students raise money? And that, when it worked the first time, you know, when we went, we went and basically did the conversion to student union and then did that, that pitch then again to the same development office that had turned us away the first time. That was a really powerful experience as well. So, like, boom. Yeah, it's magic. Saying yes so, now. Yeah. But I think it's that thing as well. It's uh, so often with these things, it's bringing your tribe to the party, for want of a better phrase. You're finding these people out there and it's like, look, here it is on a plate. You know, that, that can be really, really strong. If you, you just have to put in the groundwork to start with, perhaps. Maybe that's the way round. Yeah. I mean, they, they call it traction, don't they, in startups? So, you know, you have to prove that the thing works. You have to prove that users are interested. You know, and you, to be honest, I mean, it's the same for investors as, as it is for customers. There's a big deal of, of trust and legitimacy and whatever. When a, when a startup begins trading, most people look at it and just go, yeah, but you're not serious. Uh, and there's so many barriers to entry. Um, but when you can go there with a network of people, real people and you can just point at them and say look there's the picture there's the amount they funded there's the amount they gained here's the project they created you know and, and you say we've raised a certain amount of money for student projects then it just changes the conversation the trust issues just disappear completely so. it's hard for them to argue their way out of it really isn't exactly. it exactly it becomes inevitable you, you should be doing this obviously and also for you, it's the confidence as well, because it gives you that confidence of being like, actually, here it is, it's working. Not that, you know, hopefully you have the confidence before, but it gives you that real extra boost, I'd imagine. It, it makes a big difference. I mean, like I said, these were the, the defining moments, in effect, were the, were the proof of concept things. They were the things that made us sort of realise that the, this was probably going to work. Reaffirms um, it. Exactly. exactly. So you, otherwise, you're sort of, you're always pitching a little cold. You're always sort of going in thinking... It's quite good. Yeah, I could be talking rubbish here, but... And the thing is, that, that manifests in, in your tone, it manifests in your body language. And so when you're trying to convince somebody else of an idea, if you don't believe in it 100% yourself, you've no chance. The first step is to believe it yourself. So, Have there been any moments where you've just thought, this is just too much of a challenge, I can't do this anymore, and what's made you carry on? Uh, yeah, yeah, there have been a few. Um, I think you'd be lying if you said there weren't, to be I honest. Think, to be honest, any entrepreneur would be lying. Um, the thing is, uh, we have a small team. We were originally two, we're now four people. But we, we feel like we're doing the work of about 20. 
and uh, the moments that really get you are when you have you know probably a little ill a little overworked a little tired and then five or six customers all turn around at the same time and say no and one or two of those just get you a little bit down a little bit emotional and I think we, we've had a few moments where we, we've tried a few different sectors we've tried a little bit of, um, of kind of exploring whether there are other customers for our platform and we had one or two customers effectively string us along and string us along and string us along and having spent you know two or three weeks working on a pitch and a proposal for somebody and then effectively you know you plan a phone call and you don't get the call back at all and you can't get in touch with them that's one of the things where actually you know I learned a lot today in one of the talks that was given you know we're talking about selling and and realizing that a maybe is actually almost certainly a no and it's going to waste your time if somebody says maybe 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 just send me another email just give me a bit more information this probably means they're not interested and I wish I'd had that advice before but to be honest I mean in a business like ours we're really lucky because every time we get bad news we, we get a pledge coming into our website every hour so and they, they email me so every single time a pledge comes in I get an auto email from the website so even if I feel down for a little bit I then get an email from the web, website that says you have a new user and then you have a new pledge and then someone submitted a new project so you get positive reinforcement all the way and to be honest within two or three of those you're smiling again because you can see it working you're lucky with the, the nature of what yours is because it kind of it's the tonic isn't it yeah well I have to be honest we did design some of it so <laughs> yeah. you know I mean most of it's luck but I mean you know we, we put together daily emails as well so collects all of the site statistics for a whole day and emails us at midnight. Well, you know, frankly, if you're worried about life, you're worried about the business, you're worried about where the next paycheck's coming from, then, frankly, the one time you're doing that is just before you go to bed at midnight. So you look at the site stats in the day. How many users, how many projects, how many pledges? And to be honest, it, it always makes you feel good. You were mentioning then about advice that you wish you'd been given. Mm. That's my last question is, apart from that, perhaps on the selling point, um, what advice do you wish you'd been given when you started out? Uh, okay, well, I mean, I have a bit, bit of a bugbear in this whole section. I think that one of the things that startup companies need is genuine, free, honest advice and and actual help. And I don't mean that this is something where, where you sort of, you know, you go and talk to somebody for half an hour and then they start to charge you afterwards. There needs to be a commitment and probably paid for by government or possibly paid for by local government to spend money on accountancy and legal work for startups because the single biggest drain on a startup's time, energy and resources are those two things. They're the paperwork we're starting the whole thing up. We raised finance. When we raised finance, £1,000 of it goes to a lawyer. Um, that's kind of ridiculous. Why is the government not picking up the bill for that? We're employing four people now. That's four people who would otherwise perhaps not even be in the country. And we, we employ somebody who's Irish and somebody who's basically spent the last 25 years in America. And they wouldn't be here paying tax, contributing to the economy, unless the startup existed. So I would like to see the government actually make a commitment to cover the first two years of legal and accountancy expenses for every startup. It's it, such basic and stuff. And it's cheap. I mean, I think, what have we spent on it? We've probably spent £5,000. It's not the amount of money, though. In the end, it's the, sort of the hassle of dealing with these people who you don't know. I mean, I, I trust them. I think they're great people. But I'd like to see just that commitment to take that stuff off. I mean, you know, if you go to the U.S., this is a genuine difference in the U.S. If a U.S. investor sees you working on accounts or sees you working on legals and you're the CEO or you're the marketing director or you're a person in that company, they'll try and fire you. They don't want to see you do any admin whatsoever. They want to see you build the business because that's what you're good at doing. You're not good at doing accounts. Get somebody else to do it. And I, mean, I think it would be hugely powerful if we could get a commitment from, from government to, to actually solve that problem. For God, I'd be, I'd be first on your sign-up sheet if that was the way. I'm following the crusade. Just quickly, it's an amazing opportunity, this Shell Livewire. Give me your thoughts on how it can transform what you guys are doing. Well, so, so the Shell thing for us is, uh, is it's actually the Livewire competition and the whole process of meeting with the judges. To be honest, I mean, it's a credibility thing. 
So, uh, as I said, the education sector is extremely slow moving uh, and it's based entirely on trust, reputation, credibility. And really, what the Shell, the Shell Livewire competition does is to enhance our reputation in the, in the sector. It, it enables us to go to somebody and say, you know what, yeah, you think we're just a little small company, you think we've only been trading for a year. That's actually true, but we've got all these people behind us. And, you know, we're going to be able to go to people now and say, as part of this process, we met with all of these amazing judges. You know, I've got business cards in my pocket that I couldn't dream about having as a result of this event. And and that credibility, actually, it just bridges the trust gap for us. So. People just need to get the hell involved. Exactly.